AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. Hello, welcome to AT&T ThreatTrack for April 11th, 2016. This program provides network security highlights, discussion, and countermeasures for cyber threats. Today, we're joined by Rob Gresham. And Rob, you are a uh, security consultant or a uh, incident response consultant for Intel Security. Welcome to the program, first of all. And uh, tell us a little about yourself. Thanks, Brian. I do appreciate you guys inviting me on. The biggest thing is, is that uh, what I do is I do crisis management for customers. Uh, incident response is part of it, but it's also being able to understand the CTI aspects and mm -hmm. provide cyber threat intelligence to my team that is actually out. So we work in a dual team capacity on the back end, right. but also we do consulting primarily in the space of security operations management mm -hmm. and incident response development programs. So we were talking a little bit earlier, you talked about basically taking the existing tools that organizations have and have and helping them to use them correctly. Yeah. So one of the sub teams of, in, of uh, Intel Security or the groups in the professional services side is the Foundstone team. Mm -hmm. And the Foundstone team is focused on agnostic systems going into existing customers and then taking out the assessment of what tools they have mm -hmm. and then making those tools better focusing primarily on the people, process, and tools so that they can do active defense on their infrastructure with what they have already. And then if they have an intelligence gap where they can't see something or detect something, then we, we recommend a tool capability versus an actual tool, if that makes yeah. sense. Very cool. So you have some other activities you're involved in as well, you're in the reserves. And so yeah, I'm a National Guard member for South Carolina. I've been in the military for pretty much 25 years, I'm getting to the sunset point, but I also participate in an organization called Gallant Few, which is a right. veterans networking and mentoring program for special, primarily special operations, but we don't turn anybody away if you need help. Mm -hmm. And it's focused on new soldiers leaving or airmen or any kind of service member leaving and wanting to find a way to network into their new space mm -hmm. from the military sector to private sector. I, I handle mostly the computer guys. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of trigger pullers that, mm -hmm. that run into the computer space, but there are a few, a few of mm -hmm. us out there. And, uh, and then also we help provide uh, mentoring and uh, the other one is uh, somebody to talk to. When uh, they All get right. back, they're, they're, just, they're upset mm -hmm. or they have some problems, maybe some PTSD issues. Mm -hmm. and then we talk to them and because we've felt and done the same things that they've done, mm -hmm. we talk them through and get them the right resources. Yeah, I think there's a, a significantly growing awareness of the, the social challenges of transitioning from, you know, uh, combat environments and moving into uh, basically civilization as, as some of us know, I guess. But, you know, I think even some more subtle aspects uh, may come across, like just simply putting together resume is kind of a new experience. And so... Well, a lot of times they got to understand that they, they may be starting all over again, right? right? That they've achieved a status and a capability in their trade skill, but then now they come into the commercial world and nobody knows what they did. Or maybe mm -hmm. in some people's format, they can't talk about what they did, mm -hmm. right? And then when that comes into a problem, how do you articulate what you really know and the back end of it without giving away some of the trade secrets that we use yeah. as a nation? So, well, translating some of the skills into 
into a new world, so yeah, to speak. Absolutely. Right. Well, glad you're doing that. Thanks, I appreciate it. Uh, so we also have today Matt Kaiser. Welcome, Matt. How's it going, Brian? And uh, online we have Jim Clausing. Welcome, Jim. Hey. <laughs> and I'm Brian Rexrode. And uh, Matt, let's go to you first. Let's talk a little about the uh, the dry decks and uh, how that's been evolving. Yeah. So there was a really cool report that came out by a company that I had previously not heard of. They're called Buggeroo. That's a funny name, but if you read to the end of the report, it turns out they call themselves Bug Gurus. So it's, <laughs> if you think of that, it's easy to pronounce. Um, but they put together a paper about the inner workings of Drydex, which I thought was pretty interesting. And it suggests that there's been a shift in the, the operations of Drydex and potentially in the owners of the botnet itself. Mm -hmm. So the story starts off they have customers. One of the customers provides a web inject. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with the idea of a web inject, uh, it's a small piece of code. It's a modular bit of code that's used usually in banking trojans. And you slot this bit of code in, and it allows you to make manipulations to a website, mm -hmm. in particular a banking website, so that someone goes to that site, it sort of gets modified, extra things they added in. Maybe they'll ask for a social security number and then redirect that to another server somewhere. Mm -hmm. So what they did is they took that apart and then found out where one of the command and control servers was and eventually found a bug in that command and control server that somehow, and they weren't very specific about how, gave them access to some of the information about what was going on within the botnet. So that's always cool. I mean, that's the kind of research that I really enjoy reading because it shows you the, the backside of what, because for most of us, we're on the defensive side. We're trying to just make sure that the, the malware doesn't get to people, but understanding how it actually works in the back end is pretty fascinating. Mm -hmm. So it turns out that there's been a shift in the targets of the Drydex botnet. Originally, it was only English-speaking um, targets, typically. And Drydex is, is known for sending lots and lots of spam. And it seems that they've actually shifted to some non-English-speaking countries in South America and Africa as well. The Rocky ransomware, which viewers of our show will probably know, is actually being distributed by Drydex today as well, which may suggest some ties between the authors of, of Locky and Drydex, or at least a business relationship between the two of them, clearly. The interesting thing is that the folks at Bookaroo said that originally Drydex was a very sophisticated, very well-written bit of malware. There was a takedown last year, I want to say October 2015. And since then, it's had a resurgence. But the fact that they were able to find such an obvious flaw in the command and control mm. suggests that somebody else is writing new versions of Drydex and not doing quite as good a job. Mm. So it may, may understand, it may explain the shift in the, the use of the botnet as well as the, the quality of code that's being used. Mm -hmm. So overall, I thought it was a pretty interesting report. Have you been observing, because what we've been observing is a lot of things with um, centralizing the exploit kits and then them sharing out and then moving those across the way. So like, for example, the, the Dire takedown recently, now some of the codes finding it, we're seeing finding bits of that dire capability showing up in Drydex. Mm -hmm. And then as Drydex moves around and takes that capability, it's going out and pushing out Lockheed, and then Lockheed's mm -hmm. getting, getting money left or right. Organizations don't really know until they get it whether or not they have to pay for it. Because it's really a question of whether they have the backups that they need. Right. Do they have, how long, what's the uh, recovery time objective for those? What's the recovery point objective? Is it more costly to restore all the systems that they need to restore, mm -hmm. or is it just better to pay the ransom and then let it do its thing, right? So when you look at the cost, uh, I think the organization, uh, some of the organizations that we've had to help with, not only did they have to pay the ransom, but then they had to turn around and pay instant response fees on top mm -hmm. of that 
um, to make sure that they didn't have anything else going on right. in their environment. Then they had to go back to their constituents and prove data wasn't modified by going and taking those malware pieces apart and or those tools apart, because some of them aren't really malware, mm -hmm. pulling those tools apart and seeing, okay, hey, was this tool manipulating the data or was it just encrypting the data? And uh, one of the recent examples of that is that SamSam EXE, mm. it's encrypting all the things, right? It's, they're, they're getting, they're using a JBoss exploit, compromising a web server or an application server on the outside of the network, and then turning around and using a web shell to connect in, and then pivoting inside, and then using open source tools like sdelete, um, psexec, mm -hmm. um, and then maybe SamSam EXE, which is all it is is a, an encrypting tool, take in key, in, take in file, encrypt file, mm -hmm. spit out um, hash, and then move on. And then do some name changing. One of the unique things that we found about uh, SamSam was what it did in order to expedite the process. A lot of times, ransomware has been uh, prey and spray, right? The spamming campaigns, get, get somebody to click on a link, they click on the link, or sometimes now with DreadX malvertation, where they're sending them to a link and then they're getting popped from the link and coming back. Flipping that coin and going to the other side of it and saying, hey, um, we're gonna try and make this a little bit more profitable and how we're gonna go about this process is we're gonna get as many systems as we can mm -hmm. and we're gonna encrypt as many things as we can by changing the sort order of the files I process and process smallest to largest. Mm -hmm. um, when you process that fast, you can encrypt a lot of files going mm -hmm. that way and not get caught up on something else. Plus it also defeats some automatic early detection mechanisms when you're talking about uh, application protection rules for like AV. Mm -hmm. One of the early things that we would tell customers is that pay attention to what touches your AV and if any oddball application touches your AV, you know that that's not right. Yeah. There's nothing yeah. that should be touching that protected source, right? Mm -hmm. And then there's an easy indicator that malware was running around. One, malware was running around, or ransomware particularly is trying to encrypt that space. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there are a lot of, uh, I mean, you actually cover a lot of things there, didn't you? <laughs> so the, a lot of activities evolving First of all, multiple campaigns. We talked a little bit about the Drydex. It's evolving over to uh, deploying Lockheed, which is one set of ransomware. You talked about SamSam, which is, uh, seems to be a more targeted, aggressive. but using a lot of, and, and aggressive, and trying to really kind of take specific businesses and put them in basically in a, in a position where they, they have to make some hard decisions. Exactly, like uh, Horry County in South Carolina, they had an incident out there where they had, and then the other one in Kentucky. Mm -hmm. There you were seeing a couple of public uh, outcries of problems with it. The, mm -hmm. I think the real key is is that in these organizations that are getting compromised, it's most of the time it's the easy, simple things, right? Mm -hmm. Talos Security just came out with an article today, and that article basically goes back and kind of does the past, present, and future. It's a really good primer for what is the ransomware doing from TeslaCrypt to CryptoWall mm -hmm. to CryptoLocker, TeslaCrypt being the most developed right now and being the hardest, the more professional version. Mm -hmm. But it's still not using a broad-based mechanism to deploy. It's mm -hmm. primarily being driven towards Drydex delivery mechanisms like Locky and Angler. And, uh, I think the last on version four we were seeing the Angular exploit kit being used for that. Mm -hmm. uh, when, you, when you start shifting out of that realm and going into the, into the future of the dangerous zone, um, 
we start talking about, well, what if we had a worm, right? right. What happens right. is a, if a worm gets into your environment and now its payload is ransomware, mm -hmm. right? And every organization, almost every organization I've been in, they have open chairs. If it's a Windows mm -hmm. environment, aid, uh, admin dollars open, right? And mm -hmm. if I can get access, get priv privilege escalation, it's game over, right? I can spread all over where I need. Mm -hmm. But how do you defeat that? Yeah. You got to use a tool like the local admin privilege tool from Microsoft called Laps, or you got to use like uh, another tool that does password management from the local admin credentials so that local admin credentials from box to box aren't the same. Mm -hmm. So that you can't just use Mimikatz to pull that password out of memory and use it over. Mm -hmm. But again, we still have that problem with shared group accounts, service accounts that are running around in our environments that are still using those passwords. Yeah, but. absolutely. So, I, I mean, it, you were you were asking <laughs> your, your director, I think he had basically answered it, is that there's it's certainly at the domain level, there are protections that can be put into place to be able to control things. Are there any other recommendations that you'd make to organizations that basically try to get themselves in a position that they're, as this evolves forward, it sounds like it's not really a fad. I mean, we can hope that it is. Well, we wish we it was a fad, but as you can see, it's becoming more and more of a business. Yeah. As you look at the article from Talos and you look at our articles about ransomware, um, you'll see that uh, it's becoming more and more of a business. It's yeah. profitable. Uh, last year, I think it was 300, uh, we reported uh, for CryptoLocker was like $345 million in ransom. Wow. that they've earned globally throughout. Mm -hmm. So when you're talking about that kind of income and how much they can make and then $90,000 a month, um, there is the Bitcoin operators for SamSam that we can track or that we got access to. Mm -hmm. um, they've already, in a month, they made $117,000. So when you're talking about profitability, the profitability is there to continue this. So mm -hmm. do we think ransomware is going away? It's not a fad. It's mm -hmm. the new state of things. Yeah. Um, and when you compare that to perhaps other sorts of fraud, like in purchasing fraud, credit card fraud, things like that, it requires a larger network of people, I would imagine, compared to ransomware, which is probably a relatively small number of folks well, that are really engaged It's also in a diminishing return, right? The banks have, have done the best that they can to kind of come up with fraud-based mechanisms, like uh, one bank that I use is USAA, and one of the things that they do is they they tag your swipes to your phone app. If you swipe your card somewhere and your phone is on, mm -hmm. your, the app reports your location so they can parallel, well, you are physically in that because they're basically two-factoring you in the environment, mm -hmm. which is an awesome security mechanism. It's, you know, naturally you have to opt into the location services, but mm -hmm. once you do that, they know where you are, so they know if you try to purchase something in Rwanda, you're probably not in Rwanda today. So, and especially with somebody who travels like me all the time, it's, I don't really like getting, going up to the hotel, checking in and going, your card's blocked, can you please call your bank today? It was one of those funny scenarios yeah. that, I think I mentioned to you, I spend a, a good amount of time in the hotel, so that protection yeah. mechanism is awesome. Yeah, yeah, so the, uh, the, uh, the banks have put a lot of fraud protection mechanisms into place. They're really investing in that area. And this is a case in the ransom where each individual organization is basically on their own to protect themselves, right? Yeah, and, and I think that's where we, when we look at protection mechanisms, it's not necessarily you can do everything, you just don't want to be the first one, right? right. You want to, unfortunately, it's, you know, how do you run away from the bear? Yeah, you don't have to outrun the bear, just have to outrun <laughs> You have to run, outrun the one guy, that had, <laughs> one guy is all you have to outrun. The bear will get him, and, and yeah. as we've seen actors 
The, if you want, if you take the sniper methodology and you aim small, miss small, if I aimed for a button on my chest, I'm not gonna miss my chest, mm. right? So when you look at security, you know, you could aim small and security looking for those advanced actors who are trying to maintain persistence. Mm. You're gonna see those things that are popping up that are all over the place. Like I know you and me, we can do incident response on a, on a box. And if it's mostly the common stuff, within five or 10 seconds of looking at the box, we've seen it. We already know where it is, and we can mm -hmm. and react to it. That's not common in in our industry, right? right? Especially at the help desk level, we're not training them as security professionals. We're not training them to observe that first. It, on a lot of organizations, it's wipe and rebuild. So what I would say is is that with these new advanced, like the bot based or the worm or the admin based is start monitoring, and I know my peers are gonna hate this, start monitoring your admins because you have to start looking at that network connectivity. Mm -hmm. You have to start looking at that admin usage because while they're mapping your network, looking for your gold, they're not, at least right now, they may not be looking for where your admins are located mm -hmm. and how they connect to those systems. And that's something that you can pick on because that's something that you know that they don't know. And if you're doing proper network segmentation, you have a management VLAN, you know where your network activity is coming from. It's not coming from a web server in your DMZ. It's, you know, who's now running a script against a PowerShell script against all of your internal workstations, right? That's an easy thing from a network perspective to see, mm -hmm. right? And those are the kinds of things that from a defensive capability. Another thing is uh, getting back to the basics. A lot of organizations that we run into we find that they're just running AV. No network or host intrusion protection capability. And uh, that's one of the biggest things that we go is like, your AV is exploitation protection. Mm -hmm. It's not vulnerability protection. And if you're not gonna patch, which is another getcha, <laughs> if you're not gonna patch, at least put something in line between you so that remote code execution, and it right. may be a host host-based piece that keeps privilege escalation from happening. If you stop those two, mm -hmm. you get 80% of the people, you've just passed that first guy, mm -hmm. and you may save yourself from the bear this time. Right. But as, as, they start, as we start to weed out these, I, I really do think that we're gonna have a lot of people still falling behind and getting chewed up by bears. Yeah, it's, a, it's an arms race. Yeah. Fundamentally, it's an arms race. Or pandas, race. or... Yeah, or <laughs> <laughs> they're still bears, yeah. right? Yeah, <laughs> but I, I think they're more interested in bamboo than people. But yeah. <laughs> the, That's a funny thing about our organization that, we like, that I like, is that we're more focused at the motivation level versus the, the nation-state actor point. So yeah. when we look at motivation, who wants to... What's the motivation of, of the different type of actors, right? The motivation is I want to be quiet and I, want, I don't want you to know I'm there, mm -hmm. right? How long can I stay and persist in your environment? Where cybercrime is get in, I want to get in, I want to get what I was looking for and yeah. get out as get quickly out. and as efficiently as possible. So That's when you true. look at the different motivations, it's definitely a different way to see mm -hmm. and you can focus on the team. Uh, that's trying to handle that. So it doesn't matter, especially with these conjoined kits that they're using like Drydex and Angler, where they're pivoting from banking crime, which where they're not, you know, 35, was it $35 for a credit card is what the going rate is on the dark mm -hmm. web. Well, that's not nothing when you're, you know, you're hand, you can get 50 million credit cards and they keep making more mm -hmm. um, to the other side where if I just ransomware a few people, I can make a good amount of money in a very yeah. short period of time. Yeah. Good point. You know, I think one of the other uh, uh, sort of important things for businesses to keep in mind relative to ransomware is, and most of the cybercrime we've dealt with in the past, 
it doesn't have a direct potential impact on business continuity. This is one where once you become a victim, even if everything goes right, it could have a significant impact on business continuity. Your ability to just to sustain the business through the process of doing a remediation. Exactly, like we talked about um, that SamSam, particularly that particular malware yeah. and its use case, that one uh, goes at, went after the systems. Mm -hmm. So it was more cost beneficial to the organization to pay the ransomware than it was to go through the recovery process right. of backups, whether they tested them or not. Mm -hmm. I went to the customer and uh, that was having the issue and they literally had a table like yours in front of you with the tape stacked up high. I was like, how long would it take you to recover those systems? And they only had a couple of racks of systems. How long would it take you to recover that? And they were like, all day. All, all night, all the next week. Now, yeah. some of the customers that we've and been that's, to... That's, that's probably a relatively optimistic prediction, right? <laughs> if, if, the, if they work, yeah. that's the other one. They, they actually do know, which sounds like they've tried it at least once. Which yeah. Sometimes you get companies who don't. Yeah, sometimes yeah. they're just backing up tapes and shipping them off-site. And, yeah. and then they got to wait to get them back. Or uh, A lot of times, you know, we see, especially with this whole lean towards cloud provisioning, is... Um, DR um, and business continuity mirrored as high availability. Mm -hmm. um, and one customer, you know, had 66 terabytes of Exchange replicated databases, but their Exchange environment was was sitting on the DMZ. Mm. And how do you protect an organization when you're putting some of your most critical assets sitting on the in the domain where you don't want? people to be accessing them yeah. but it's I think one of the uh, one of our biggest mistakes was using an acronym for you know the or acronym D DMZ yeah because the whole the whole concept seems to have been lost in many cases about what that really is intended well, I, to mean I think I think uh, one of the things that uh, that we talk about is this whole expanse of the porous network like mm -hmm. you your organization and our organization is we got most of our people are mobile, right? And have mobile. And how do you protect against that porous, mm -hmm. porous, porosity of that network? And how do you keep everything in and manage it and maintain it? That becomes the problem for mm -hmm. everybody to keep that security focus. And then when people are coming in, coming out, coming in, coming out, what are the patterns? And mm -hmm. a lot of the times we can't figure those pieces out. We, it takes too much time, too much energy, not enough. So we, we, uh, use the cloud as a mechanism to say, okay, it's other people's hardware, other people's problem, and not my problem anymore. <laughs> use that technology to get a better cost savings, mm -hmm. but you give up a security capability in the process. Like Potentially so. I, I, I think there, there are trade-offs in that, in that space, in that if you're going to someone that is doing a particular segment of a cloud service, and they do it well, partly because that's what they focus on, you may actually have a security improvement associated with that, but it's not automatic. It's something that really Absolutely. has to be taken a look at closely. I would agree 100%. And the key is, is that what is your business goal like? If you have data confidentiality issues like HIPAA or PCI, and then you're, you're using a cloud, do they have the capabilities right. to provide you data, data loss prevent, mm -hmm. prevention? You know, like. So let's get back to ransomware for just a moment. And uh, maybe we can summarize a little bit what folks should be thinking about when they're thinking about protecting, first of all, their continuity of business now. We're not just talking about recovering from a data theft. We're recovering from 
are actually helping to prevent, hopefully, <laughs> a, a business extortion continuity issue. Extortion is really what it is. Yeah, right? it's, it's, it's absolutely extortion. extortion. So absolutely. If you want to protect from extortion, primarily what you need to be is you need to be vigilant about what's coming in and out of your network. One yeah. really good remediation technique from a, from the prey and spray ransomware is mm -hmm. tag your external emails coming internal as external. Right. This is an external email coming into your environment. It does one of two things. It tells, because not all of our, our wonderful customers go up and hover their, their mouse over the top of the username to make sure it's you know Rob Gresham. It's really Rob Gresham at Intel.com, not uh, Rob Gresham at AOL.com, mm -hmm. right? And, well, and, there, and just to advance on your your first point here, there are lots of other things that if you really want to get aggressive, you could basically defang all of the URLs that are coming in, strip attachments, those yep. kinds of things. But at the very exactly. least, at least label things so that they. They, so you know what's coming from outside. Yeah, especially I've I've only seen defanging actually successful in a few organizations. Well, it can be pretty frustrating, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm not uh, suggesting that's the yeah, right solution. It, I'm just saying if you really want to get aggressive, I know of organizations. I know that we've do that. yeah, I do, and I do too. And I've I've seen us talk about it with other organizations, and they go no. Yeah. The the security <laughs> professionals and the information officers. Or go no, we can't handle that. Well, but I think just I'm sorry for the interruption once again, but that's I think that's a real uh, scenario where just recognizing that there's always sort of a trade-off between business value and security risk, and I think that's one of the things that it, at least in the current state I see more and more now is security organizations really partnering with the business processes as opposed to basically putting rules and just putting rules in place and saying, you know, I'm, an, I'm a rule enforcer. Now it's more, it really has to be a partnership so that the business benefits are weighed against the security risk. Exactly, because I was at a, a major agri, agricultural firm just a couple weeks ago supporting them. And one of the things that they were like, Drydex, what's the main delivery mechanism from Drydex? It's a Word document with macro files, right? Okay, if you haven't turned off macro files in your environment, for only the people that need it, please, please do. <laughs> because it's right. you, even if you have a click-through process, it's the little link on the bottom that tells the user, hey, if you really want to see this message, you need to click through this link mm -hmm. to enable the macros. And they click on it, and it's over. Mm -hmm. um, and there's only thing we can do is respond to as timely as we can. And right now, I think that the response to change or the download is right around 24 hours. So if you can't shrink and then I think uh, if you can't shrink that response to 24 hours then you're looking at you know the average which is four months that's terrible right because mm -hmm. they've been in your environment for a good amount of time but being able to do that means that the CISO or the chief information officer has to go back to the business units and go finance I know you use macros please please can we disable this and if we can't can you give me a list of users that it can be mm -hmm. and then go back to your providers and go okay I need to defang this capability for this user set mm -hmm. how do I do that and then let the and let them help you come through that process right. whatever that is the other one I think that you could do to get the targeted attacks out of the way um, primarily is know where your critical assets are um, knowing and monitoring what's happening on your network. Mm -hmm. um, having that network visibility, I think the number one thing we tell CISOs across the board is if you don't have visibility, if you can't detect an anomaly, you, that's where you're, you're missing a tool to fix that problem. Mm -hmm. If you have any course of action you need to detect, 
you know, once you get the basics out of the way, can you move into a program of what course of action do you, do you want to deny, do you want to disrupt, those capabilities. Um, well, the way I've tended to think about it is that any layer of security that you put in place is really just to buy you time. And it's the detection that helps you understand which layers have been defeated. And it at just gives you an opportunity yeah. at what point in time and to an opportunity to identify the attackers and push them back behind the layers again. Just respond. That's yeah. the biggest thing, exactly. right? If yeah. we could just respond to events in a timely manner, that's half the battle, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that's where the industry is really seen, you know, with uh, other competitors in the space and their capability to produce incident responders at a great rate, right? That's where we're starting to see a lot of uh, CISOs trying to outsource the incident response piece because they, they don't want to pay for us, mm -hmm. right? They, they, they just want it <laughs> to work. Not full time. Anyway. That, yeah, not full time. They only want you when, you, when they need you. Yeah. And, and when they want you, they, it's like raising the bat phone, come, get on the next plane, get here to help me. Um, and then, you know, I've spent, uh, I think one, one project was like 158 hours in seven days. Wow. I mean, that's a lot of time to spend on the phone, yeah. helping the customer out. But the, the end state is, is it shows them that customer even had a due diligent at a security administrator because mm -hmm. he was literally automating some stuff, right? To check to make sure if he had a f detection failure, it would send him an email. Mm -hmm. And Sunday morning at 6 a.m., it's sending him emails and then it's sending him a lot of emails. <laughs> and he calls his boss up and says, help me, <laughs> call, yeah. hits the no, back. I shouldn't, be, I shouldn't be laughing because it's a, obviously a very depressing situation to be in. But. Yeah, well, he actually, this individual took it on in stride and was trying to keep his, for all the havoc that he was having in his environment, he kept his team upbeat. He, he showed me a lot of, a lot of uh, capability and just in the inside, a lot of turmoil on the outside, just it's happy day. It's yeah. a good day. We'll, we'll make good. it. Or good for him to yep. be able to do that. All right. Anything? So I, let me ask you a little bit about um, You'd mentioned the the backup tapes, but we're derailed, what, yeah. <laughs> got derailed a little bit. But what what are your thoughts on backups? I mean, really, is that so? Backups are effective, but the problem is, is it's a cost benefit analysis. Mm -hmm. When you actually get um, you get encrypted, do you have backups enough on mm -hmm. all the things that you care about to fix them? I think the backups are successful into some degree in the prey and spray ransomware environments, but mm -hmm. when it's when it's like a Sam Sam and I own all your things, it's gonna be a cost benefit whether or not you you actually go through and pay the ransomware to start the process to get your business back up online, mm -hmm. because a lot of times they're impacting the ability of the business to function. Mm -hmm. So that was one of the things I mentioned is staying, knowing your key terrain, so that at least how do you stop a ransomware from encrypting your environment? You shut the machine off until you can get the antidote yeah. and then get and then go ahead and apply the antidote mm -hmm. to get it fixed. Yeah. yeah, no, well that goes that goes back to a point you made a little earlier there, Rob, about um, you know, folks who in the in a cloud environment are not really talking about DR and so much as high availability. Mm -hmm. You know, the the fear in the ransomware situation is your other available copies all got encrypted because you propagated it out too quickly. Yeah. You know, to, yeah. to your to your other high availability sites. And so you, you still need some way of A, you gotta stop it, slow it down, 
but then you still got to have some sort of separate backup that hopefully hasn't also gotten encrypted by your by your ransomware. Take a VDI approach where you have a master gold master image and then you break that gold master image away from your replica that's actually running in the environment so that you always have that offline master that you can spin up and run whatever head end that you need for that particular application that you're trying to run. Mm -hmm. But I think the it all depends on the architect and how they're looking at the solution. Uh, I uh, did an assessment a couple weeks back to your point and one of the guys is well, I've got, he was really defensive, and he's like, I got VDI, I can roll it back. I only patch once every three months, but, you know, I can roll it back whenever I want. And I asked him, okay, how many concurrent systems do you have running at any one time? And he's like, 900. And I was like, do you have any kind of micro-segmentation in there? He's like, no, it's all good. And I was like, so literally I could get a bot on one box, have it spread through your shares, and I could just keep a box compromised during that whole time. Meanwhile, you could roll it back, the whole image back. The only way you're getting me out is you roll the entire enterprise back, which means you're going to take an outage. It's effective, but that's not the point, right? The whole point of high availability is take no outage, right? Um, So you got to have a mechanism to see how those things are operating in your environment, use segmentation, which would be another big one to help you, right? How many environments do we know where the database servers are reachable from the user environment? Mm-hmm. Um, they shouldn't be, right? Mm-hmm. Um, no, I think you're, uh, your point, Jim's point, both very good ones. I think the traditional, there's, there's a distinction between high availability. There's also a distinction between disaster recovery, particularly in the traditional sense where the, the mindset has typically been some kind of a geographic event that disrupted some data center or something and uh, you may have a backup associated with that, but it's not necessarily thinking about how a malicious event might propagate and not have a geographic make it, specification. Make it real, right? And right. make your bunker site real, right? <laughs> and th- those are one of the things right. that we've seen is a lot of customers with the high availability sites, and they go through a business continuity plan, they realize that, well, what happens if we lose the, the geographically constrained site, mm-hmm. how do we get back up? And then they realize they got to have a bunker yeah. site. What, what, if they, what if the problem is not geographically isolated? Yeah. What if it propagates across the network or something? And yeah. so there really need to be thoughts put into how you prevent something from getting from one site to another. And what replication pieces happen on right. that network site? Absolutely. So the, uh, I think to your point about, you know, the potential of things replicating across the 900 machines and very good. Any last? <laughs> so the, we covered a lot. We covered backup. Yeah, we, we covered um, monitoring your network. We covered. Uh, well, I think to some extent, um, there, there needs to be some thought put into prioritizing the recovery process. If there is what critical need, systems what, you have, what comes first? What yeah, what down, can wait? <laughs> yeah, what can wait? <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of that. Um, the other thing is, is you still have to engage your, um, even if you do get compromised, one of the quickest things on the prey and spray is observing the activity as it occurs, using your AV device to actually see that event come up. Like if you have antivirus, a lot of the encrypto crypto systems will try to encrypt the antivirus that's running on the mm-hmm. system because it's one of those running processes. If you see that kind of activity and you look at it and it's not a normal process, it's not some kind of updating system or some shutdown mechanism, 
then you know that that's some kind of problem on your network. And then you don't need a special tool or anything else. You can identify that. And then the quickest thing to do is just shut down that system. Because if it's a prey and spray environment, right, mm -hmm. the defensive mechanism is, or the compromise is usually an end user, mm -hmm. which isn't so much. The one of the things that made Locky so scary um, for us is that it mapped unmapped shares. Mm -hmm. A lot of the other ones would only do map shares, and Locky went straight after and said, oh, I got all the map shares. Now I want to go find all the unmapped shares that I can get access mm -hmm. to and see if I can encrypt those too. And those scary little uh, plugins that they give to their mm -hmm. capabilities um, makes it harder for us to play defense against. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that network segmentation, you know, is there any reason why a workstation should talk with a local host firewall should talk on 139 or 445, right? Mm -hmm. Unless if you have, if you're a modern architecture and you have shares and you're telling all your users or your customers to put all their files in the share and stay away from local devices because you're not backing them up for whatever reason, that automatically you need those two ports. You can shut those two ports down. They have no reason to have connection. Mm -hmm. And you shut down 80% of the malware that likes to propagate against those against mm -hmm. those channels and adversaries that like to use those channels, maybe. <laughs> um, so. Yeah, very true. You know, one of the things that I've kind of put some thought in, or, I mean, have been wondering about, does it make sense for backup tools to transition more to a pull process as opposed to a push process? The tendency today, I think, is to have machines kind of push out, which basically means that, um, that any malware could also be pushing out you know, encrypted files yeah. and replacing the ones that were in place. I it seems like perhaps a tool that's more pull-oriented and paying a little more attention to what it's doing might be a, a, a better protected scenario. I think the problem is is that ransomware got really smart about VSS shares or VSS backup capability on the Windows and basically disabled it before mm -hmm. it even starts anything. Mm -hmm. And now it's the standard. So and. One of the other components of the uh, the Sam Sam was is that it went in and deleted all your SQL backups off the drive. So if you were seeing all these things occurring, and if the more the faster we put in a backup mechanism to protect ourselves, the faster they're going to figure out a way to defeat it. Yeah. I think the the true way to eradicate the threat is to go after the motivation, mm -hmm. and this is. This is where we go into the hard problem, right? Mm -hmm. If we go after the motivation, what's the motivation? Money. It's money. Yeah. I got to make a. I got to turn a coin, and if they've got, if they, if we didn't pay them, we're paying for the. And one of the Talos security guys mentioned it was a very poignant statement to make: is we're paying for their development of the new versions, yeah. because every every ransomware victim that pays is giving them more money to engineer changes mm -hmm. to make it better, so they can get more money. And an and, exotic car. And well, maybe for some, <laughs> in some countries, they might be able to get away yeah. with that. Yeah. So, yeah, I, you know, I think you're right. I, I think uh, there might be an in-between point where we at least negotiate a better price, right? No. I'm, I'm like, Unfortunately, <laughs> uh, they, they negotiate a better price against you is how that extortion works. Usually yeah. they get you at one level and, oh, we had a software failure, so it's going to cost you a little bit more this time. Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay. But I was thinking hopefully that... Uh, we can get to a point where, and then, I mean, each individual company situation is different, but if we could make the decision, and we call it in the military, uh, the hard right over the easy wrong, the hard right would be not to pay, mm -hmm. right? But it's gonna be painful and it's gonna hurt and right. may cost me my job, but 
if I don't pay it and we restore it, we've learned something, right? And yeah. one of the biggest things that we, we don't learn from our successes regularly. We learn from our failures. And I would hire a CISO that's been uh, exploited way faster than I'd hire one that's been successful in his space. Because that means he hasn't learned from anything that he's seen. Certainly, if they had paid the ransom, I would. There would be. It would be hard to yeah. to justify hiring. But absolutely, I, I. I'm just going to challenge you on the one aspect of this. It's very difficult to to uh, recognize whether a CISO has not been hacked because they do a good job at preventing attacks, <laughs> or if they just have been lucky. So. Present, present company <laughs> included. That's absolutely correct, right? Yeah. The the job. What is the job of the CISO, right? The job of the CISO is to make sure that we have the resources and capabilities to do our job, right? right? And we have the right partnerships with the right uh, professionals in the business lines, mm -hmm. so that we can actually say yes to things and get things accomplished. Um, and CISOs are awesome. I, I mean, I work with a lot of them, and I help them a lot all the time. I guess the question really comes in is that, are we doing the basics? Are we doing the basic mm -hmm. blocking and tackling that we should be doing for security? And maybe sometimes it's, you know, maybe it's not the CISO, because a lot of the organizations I run into, it's a CIO, and, they're, and they're, their paradigm is different, right? They're, mm -hmm. they're focused on the availability. They're, they're focused on providing that business capability to the business from a technical perspective. Mm -hmm. And sometimes security gets in the way of that, and that's the conflict. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, thanks very much for this discussion. Thanks. And uh, we're going to move on to the next thing here, but please continue to, uh, to participate here. And uh, I think this next story is kind of interesting, Jim. And um, you know, I, we, the, we've seen a lot of scrutiny about you know, which browser is more secure than the other browser. And uh, this actually takes, takes it a little bit further. So tell us about it. Yeah, this was a, a story that uh, Dan Gooden did on Ars Technica last week. They discovered that a number of popular Firefox add-ons have some vulnerabilities in them that can be exploited. And what they discovered is that it is possible to create a malicious add-on for Firefox that would take advantage of some of the capabilities in these other extensions to hide its malicious activity. Mm. It could take advantage of, uh, you know, some file download capability of a of a different add-on to, you know, drop a payload and then use the capability of a a third add-on to actually execute the payload. The issue is because uh, within Firefox, the add-ons aren't uh, isolated from one another. There's a namespace, um, shared namespace that exposes the capabilities between between these uh, extensions. It's that's the way the ecosystem has developed up to this point. Uh, as a result of this study, the, some of the folks um, in, responsible for it you know, commented that they're working on a, a new set of browser extension APIs that make up what they're calling web extensions, which is their new way of doing things. And that will have you know, more isolation so that they, this isn't going to be a possibility at some point in the future, but um, right now it's 
it, it's kind of an interesting interesting situation because as I said the, the malicious um, add-on isn't necessarily doing all the work itself it's calling these capabilities out of other add-ons to to make it harder to figure out you know what's going on mm-hmm so this is a, it, it's good to hear that they the problem is recognized and that they're working on a solution but I expect that we're going to be living with this problem or this potential problem at the very least. Are there any known examples of exploit, or is this uh, really sort of a theoretical exercise right now? Right now, I'm all I'm aware of is the proof of concept that that uh, the folks unveiled mm-hmm. at um, Black Hat Asia, I think, last last week or the week before. Um, I am not aware of any in the wild that are exploiting this that doesn't mean that there aren't any it just means i'm not aware of any Mm -hmm. it's going to be rough for the folks who who vet those extensions you know before they make them available on you know Mm add-ons.mozilla.org to try to figure out you know it's going to be it's going to be rough for them for a while to to see if they can spot this you know, extension reuse is what they're calling the, the vulnerability. Mm-hmm. You know, I, there were a number of them, and you kind of alluded to it in your description, that a number of the plugins were associated with download management, basically uh, managing the download of files. Uh, but there was one that really looked like an exception to me, and it's actually in the title re- associated with uh, NoScript, which, you know, in effect, NoScript was intended to control the use of scripting in the browser, for security purposes, for the most part. So, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Well, yeah, the, if you look at the the top ten most uh, popular um, Firefox extensions that they analyzed in in the paper, in nine of them they found exploits that they could leverage, and included among those are NoScript, which you know. I always install that on, you know, if I'm running Firefox to to eliminate the JavaScript exploits. Mm-hmm. Grease Monkey, Firebug, the, the Flash video downloaders. Uh, yeah, the, there are a number of them in there, including ones that, you know, security professionals kind of like or you know the develop web developers you know, firebug is one that I use for for um, analyzing malicious web pages well it's got a code execution vulnerability that could be leveraged in this to so yeah there are, there are a number of them that you know, hopefully some of these vulnerabilities will be closed up in the extensions themselves mm-hmm. relatively quickly but yeah none even the even the extensions the add-ons that that I recommend to you know to my parents uh, some of them are on this list mm-hmm. 
Okay, well, thank you, Jim. And let's take a look at the internet weather for the last week or so here. And I would say no really significant uh, developments here, but we have a couple of good news stories, or actually a couple of interesting ones. First of all, no surprise, port 23 at the top of the list. Uh, that activity is still continuing. Uh, we're going to take a look at the graph associated with that, followed by port 22 TCP. There continues to be activity on that port, although I wouldn't describe, uh, you know, having looked at it, I don't have the graph here, but uh, no significant change in the activity on that. Followed by 443 TCP, I think there, and actually port 80 as well, no significant changes there either. That's still uh, activity relatively consistent. Now, there are certainly spikes in the activity, and you see the port 80 jumped up nine spots here, but uh, relative to its, uh, its normal trend in the long term, there haven't been any, any significant changes or developments there. And then followed by port 53 UDP, that's scanning activity associated with um, uh, DNS servers, uh, likely looking for uh, the opportunity to, to use them for reflective denial service attacks, followed by 3389 remote desktop protocol, 445 TCP, looking for weak file shares perhaps, and uh, 143 TCP, that's actually, uh, I think that's IMAP server, is that correct? So. And, uh, and that's a case where that's actually a testing activity that is a university doing uh, scanning, uh, looking for vulnerable uh, email servers in general, that being one of the ports that they do the probing on. And uh, port 8080 TCP had a bit of a jump, but I think uh, that is uh, really just a consequence of when we took this snapshot of the time. Again, uh, no significant changes in the activity over time. Looking at port 23 TCP, you know, this has been up and down through the weeks. Uh, it still is predominantly associated with brute force password guessing. We're looking at the last 180 days of activity in this graph, actually two graphs. The top graph is showing the number of probes, and then on the bottom graph, same time scale, looking at the number of sources doing that probing activity. And you can see at the very end here where uh, we have had over the last day or so, uh, basically a little bit of a jump last few days, uh, a jump in the number of sources that are uh, doing that probing activity. Again, these botnets uh, appear to be live and well and uh, recruiting devices. Uh, predominantly, you know, vulnerable devices, home routers, security surveillance camera DVRs, that sort of thing. Looking at the top 10 most sources doing the probing, well, we already talked about port 23 at the top of the list here, and then it's followed by 53413, which is that uh, Netis router backdoor. We'll take a look at the graph for that in a, in a minute or so here. And then uh, we also have port 27015, and I thought it would be uh, useful to take a little bit of a closer look at that port and uh, see how that one's behaving. First, 53413 UDP. And this is one where you can just uh, blindly send a script in the packet. And uh, oftentimes it'll have a wget, go download a file from a site, uh, and then change the permissions on that to an executable, and then actually execute that. And it turns the device into a, a, a member of a botnet. Uh, we've seen some uh, downtailing or basically decline of that activity over the last few weeks here. And uh, we're actually seeing a little bit of an increase in activity over the last several days. Most likely, I think what's happening is they've recruited as many as they uh, think they can in that botnet. It's essentially reached saturation point. And uh, the scanning activity that we're seeing now, or the sources doing that probing activity, are just really trying to uh, maintain that botnet. So uh, to my knowledge, there really isn't anything taking place that, uh, that's able to um, really correct the issue. Uh, next item here is scan sources on port 
27015 UDP. Now, this almost always shows up in the graphs, and I haven't really showed it. Uh, I've also, I've, you know, generally just discounted it uh, in our discussions. So I thought I'd explain a little bit why that's the case. You know, this port's associated with P2P gaming activity, and uh, we're looking at the last 180 days of activity here. And I thought it'd be kind of interesting to point out a few of the observations associated with that. First of all, whereas most activity on, on, the, on the internet tends to be busy during the week, particularly business applications tend to be busy during the week, and then kind of slack on the weekends. This one's quite the opposite. This is one where it's a little bit slack during the week, and then you see a big spike or a, a growing spike on Fridays, and then Saturday and Sunday much busier. And you can even see some holidays showing up in here. This is a case where folks are playing games on their free time, right? Um, and you also can see here where leading into the holidays, perhaps uh, students studying for exams, preparing for their finals and things like this. This is around the November timeframe here, just leading into the, the uh, perhaps the Thanksgiving break. And then following that, uh, leading into the uh, holiday season, the Christmas holiday season, and the break associated with that, where there are actually significant drops in the amount of activity. And then subsequent to the holidays, Perhaps new games have come out. They've gotten them in their, in, you know, under the Christmas tree or whatever. So there's a real growth in the activity into the beginning of January, and then it starts to tail off again. Perhaps because they have to get busy and with real life again. So, <laughs> so just a few things to share with you. Uh, so there's this is completely innocuous activity. We don't see anything malicious associated with this, but I thought it would be interesting to see uh, to share uh, some of the observations you can. Uh, see as a part of the network behavior in this, uh, on this particular port. Now back to the more serious business of uh, exploit activity, or at least attempts to do that. This is looking at the trend over the last couple of years on ports 5900, 5901, and 5902 TCP. And those are associated with the uh, virtual network client, which is uh, basically remote access in the computers. And uh, what we can see here is just a little over the last year, there's really been kind of a decline in the amount of probing activity, or at least the number of sources doing that probing on these particular ports, which is uh, a good news story. It's nice to see there's a decline here. I think it's partly because the attackers are really kind of steering toward other perhaps more lucrative targets. And uh, just as an observation, there was at least one source that is associated with aggressive activity on these ports that was also scanning a number of other related ports, or at least potentially related. Port 22, port 23, we talked about those, yeah. right? Port 1433, that's Microsoft SQL database. 3306, my SQL database. <laughs> 3389, we talked about that. That's remote desktop protocol. And also another port that I didn't recognize, which was 9527. So that begs the question, what is 9527? Well, to take a look at that a little more closely, looking at the last 180 days of activity, well, the probing activity on that port is relatively new. It's over, you know, since the, uh, the beginning of the year or so. It turns out, you know, and I, I don't really have definitive information about this, but, you know, probing around on the, uh, in the support forums and digging around on uh, doing some searches, uh, I did find some references in some closed circuit television, basically security surveillance camera DVRs, saying that, well, this port's open on my machine, and uh, somebody had made a statement that, well, if you do a telnet connection in there, it gives you basically a dump of information about the device. And uh, so I don't know specifically what brands provide this functionality or whatever, but uh, apparently somebody knows about it and they're probing around to see what they can find, uh, I, presumably about uh, security surveillance 
camera devices. So, you know, as we've talked about many times, the security surveillance camera DVRs, they really need to be uh, looked at very carefully from a security standpoint to make sure that they're locked down. And I think they're really kind of designed that even if you have an edge router, if you have a universal plug and play, they'll automatically kind of set it up so that they can be visible externally so you can, you know, look at your video cameras from, well, like you from the internet. Like you mentioned before, you know, that whole cyber CSI baby monitor. Yes. If, if <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> maybe, so, maybe somebody was watching cyber CSI because that came out about that time frame, yeah, right? Yeah, it, it, it actually <laughs> came out about that time frame. So, but, you know, those devices, they're designed to be convenient, and uh, sometimes that convenience has a, uh, your, it's a sacrifice from a security standpoint. So uh, pay attention to those. So that's your show for today. We'd like to thank you for joining us. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at attthreattrack at list.att.com. And you can find AT&T Threat Track on the ATT Tech Channel, on YouTube, as well as on iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at ATT Security. And Rob, do you happen to have a Twitter handle? I do. It's, uh, you can reach us at Foundstone, at Foundstone, or at Foundstone. me individually at RW Gresham. All right, very good. So. Uh, we look forward to uh, hearing tweets to you and from you <laughs> along the way here. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. I'd like to thank you, Rob. Uh, very much appreciate you coming here today. I do and, appreciate uh, all of you giving me a time to come spend some time with you, coming up to the beautiful weather up here and having a great time. <laughs> in New and, Jersey. <laughs> yeah. Hey, it's nice now. It could be worse. It could yeah. be a lot worse. It was Hopefully worse this weekend, right? Yeah, absolutely. So definitely some engaging conversation. I learned a lot here today. So again, once again, thank you for coming. Thanks again, Thank you, Matt. Sure thing. And thank you, Jim. I'm Brian Rexrode, and we'll be back next week with a new episode. Until then, keep your network safe. The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity. <laughs>